1: what is migration who does it why where where do they go and what do they do when they get there and how do academics study the phenomenon why does it matter to the rest of us? Welcome to International Horizons, a podcast of the Ralph Bunch Institute for International Studies that brings scholarly and diplomatic expertise to bear on our understanding of a wide range of international issues. My name is John Torpy, and I'm director of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. We're fortunate to have with us today James Hollyfield who is Aura Nixon Arnold Professor of International Political Economy in the Department of Political Science and Director of the Tower Center at Southern Methodist University SMU. He's also a Global Fellow at the Woodrow Wilson International Center in Washington DC and a member of the Council on Foreign Relations. Hollifield has written widely on issues of political and economic development with a focus on migration. Among his major works are Immigrant, Immigrants, Markets and States, now 30 years on from Harvard University Press, uh, L'Emigration et l'État Nation, uh, Immigration and the Nation State from Larmatan in 1997, uh, Pathways to Democracy by Rutledge in 2000, and Herausforderung mm-hmm. Migration, Perspektive der Vergleichenden Politikwissenschaft, which is to say, The Challenge of Migration, Perspectives uh, of a Comparative Political Science, from Verlag in 2006. Recent books include Understanding Global Migration, from Stanford-UP in 2022, Controlling Immigration, uh, its fourth edition, also from Stanford in 2022, and migration theory also a fourth edition from Rutledge in 2023 and finally he has another book forthcoming soon uh called international political economy history theory and policy from cambridge university press so obviously a huge uh, production and and you know fourth editions of more than one book tells you something about the staying power of his scholarship. So thanks for being with us today, James Holyfield. I'm delighted, John. Great to have you. So let's focus on this migration theory book, uh, which as I've just mentioned, is coming out in yet a fourth edition. Uh, And you've published it with uh, Caroline Bretel, herself from a different field, namely anthropology. Um, It's partially an overview of the field of migration studies and partially a kind of intellectual history of the field. So maybe you could tell us about, you know, the aims of the book and why you think it's been so resilient.
0: Mm -hmm. Well, I have to give my colleague Caroline Bertel all the credit because it was her idea to do this book. She just felt that as scholars, you know, we labor away in our little disciplinary silos and we, we always are unaware very often what's going on in other disciplines, sometimes deliberately so, sometimes just by oversight. Uh, and of course, if you don't know what's happening in the other fields, if you're studying a topic like migration, uh, you may end up reinventing a lot of wheels, shall we say. So uh, we decided that it was very important to get us out of our silos, Uh, To try to understand, you know, what kind of research questions we were asking, you know, what's the theoretical framework? How are you framing those research questions? Um, You know, what kind of data are you using? What kind of methods are you using? So in short, we wanted social scientists to really talk to each other. So the subtitle of the book, John, is Talking Across Disciplines. And as you yourself have pointed out, migration is inherently an interdisciplinary, uh, you have to approach it from an interdisciplinary standpoint, because if you just look at something like structure and agency, John, are we talking mostly about agency here when people are, are on the move or is the structure, social class and other things like that, does it have something to do with the choices that they make? And don't forget, when they get where they're going, they have to get integrated into society. So that's a that's another you know uh, uh, big big topic. So uh, I will just uh, conclude by saying that you know my colleague Caroline, she worked for twenty some years to try to turn me into an anthropologist, and I worked for twenty some years to try to turn her into a political scientist. And I think we sort of met halfway. You know, I still don't do a lot of ideographic, ethnographic research, you know, so I'm not focused so much on the individual agency of migrants. Uh, and she has as much dislike for the state and politics and policy as when we started this project. So you you get the point.
1: Interesting. Yeah, I mean, we all uh, get into our <laughs> disciplinary silos and, uh, you know, as you may know, as I think you do know, you know, I kind of got into the migration studies business by accident. I mean, the book that I wrote on passports was really about, you know, the development of modern state infrastructure and how did it distinguish its inhabitants, its citizens from other people and that sort of thing. And didn't really, certainly didn't think of myself as a migration person, but uh, it was one of these things that you know, came to seem to me anyway, just ubiquitous. And, you know, so much of human history is simply about moving around. Although in our world, you know, I think we've come to be mainly concerned about, you know, the traversal Uh, of international boundaries. And so I want to ask you later about, you know, the place of internal migration in all of this, which I think has tended for the reasons that I've just suggested to kind of fall to some extent by the wayside, despite its arguable importance. But in any case, I mean, can you talk, I I was also thinking about uh, Bernard Bailyn's one one or more books, I can't remember, uh, about the peopling of North America, which I thought was an interesting kind of term. Yeah. You know, because I guess there was, in a certain sense, no, you know, United States to immigrate into at the time that he's talking about. So it's this process that, you know, temporarily uh in history is doesn't fit the kind of categories of immigration and migration that we use now so i wonder if you could talk about that i mean it's uh, migration or human mobility is just simply so essential so central to the human story that everybody in some sense is studying it but just you know be curious what you would say about that
0: well as you probably know john i've i've written for decades now about something i call the migration state and um you know every time i take pen in hand and start working on this uh, i always remind people about the invention of the passport (laughs) that you know it wasn't that long ago yes john you're sort of a foundational scholar in this field and it wasn't that long ago that 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 people had m- much greater freedom of movement, you know, before the hardening, if you will, of the Westphalian system of nation states. If we go back far enough in time, there were no nation states. We, uh, you know, people were not tied necessarily to a specific territory. They weren't. They didn't belong to a government. They weren't subjects uh, of of the crown or whatever. So this whole thing about the advent of the nation state, John, and and how it especially how it came to control every dimension of our lives, uh, uh, especially in the 20th century. And Of course, nationalism goes back to the 18th and 19th century. But, you know, the nation state, you know, came down on people stopping mobility, you know, trying to determine who belongs to whom and where. And as you know, John, war had a lot to do with this. You know, as nation states went to war, uh, and of course, we—I always remind people that you know I've written extensively about the liberal state. Uh, the liberal state is based on a social contract. It's based on the idea of a demos. You know that you know who your citizens are, your people are. So liberal states, you know, are caught in this this what I call a paradox. You know, how do you how do you remain open to to movement and to migration because we societies and economies desperately need people. They need labor, especially in the, now that we're in a, a situation where uh, populations are stagnant and shrinking. Uh, so you need openness, but at the same time you need closure. So, you know, we, we've been in this living in this paradox, I would say for the past 100, 150, 200 years, really. Uh, but, um, so I think I would like to draw people's attention to my work about the migration state. And um, the, it's it's one of the absolute key functions of the modern state. You know, the state has to protect the territory, to protect the people. So it has a, a security, a garrison function. Uh, but the state, and especially in the 18th and 19th century, took on an important economic function. It's supposed to make economies grow and prosper, and that's one of its responsibilities. And migration is, as we know, economists have taught us this, is absolutely key uh, to that growth. Um, uh, But then, uh, so I would say, in addition to having a garrison state and having a trading state, what Richard Rosecrans called a trading state, in in the 19th and especially the 20th century, 21st century, we have seen the development of what I call a migration state, where you have to make decisions about who gets in, how many people, what kind of status are you going to give them, uh, and it's not just liberal states in the global north. You know, this applies equally to states in the global south. So, in my recent work, I've really we really extended this idea and really begun to study migration to the global south, and we've come up with this idea that there are varieties of migration states. I can get into that if you would like.
1: Well, why don't you go ahead and talk about that? Because as you point out in this introduction, you and Caroline Bertel point out in the introduction to this new new edition of, uh, uh, of migration theory, um, you know the the literature has tended to be you know focused on the global you know what we now I think in some ways problematically call the global north, yeah. but in any case a lot of the world has been left out. So tell us what you've been thinking
0: about that. Well, I do think that you know in in the migration field more broadly, uh, we have had a very um, ethnocentric you know political bias you know, focused, uh, you know, where did the field of migration studies begin? It began really in the United States to some extent. I, I can't remember if Ravenstein was British or American, but, uh, you know, in the field of geography, sociology, I mean, the, the field, the modern field of migration studies was really in many ways invented at the University of Chicago by sociologists the Park School. So, you know, you sociologists, you know, you were the ones who laid the foundation along with the demographers and the geographers for the study of this field. And it and it was heavily, heavily sociological. You know, it's all about individuals, agency, about society, social class. Um, and for many decades, of course, it was almost as if the state had disappeared, you know, from the study of, of migration. And then, of course, you had the uh, the the um, uh, the growth of transnationalism transnational studies uh, again taking us sort of more in a sociological uh, if not in an economic direction I think sociologists and economists basically ask many of the same questions they have different methods they use different data uh, but again I would say political science we were all late to the party <laughs> you know I when I started working on this the subject, uh, you could count us on, on one or two hands at most. There were very, very few political scientists. So uh, so I think the field of the, the study of the politics of migration has really uh, exploded in the past 30, 40 years. And, uh, you know, we have now really begun to extend way beyond these settler societies, uh, you know, which... Uh, as everybody understands, the, pop, the populating of places like the United States, Canada, Australia, uh, South Africa—you know, the, the, this, this, these, these movements of people were were not always a happy story. You know, there were uh, many uh, indigenous peoples who were overrun. There were there was genocide. So, the you know the the growth and the extension of the nation state through the European imperial system. Uh, essentially transformed uh, uh, the world, it transformed uh, migration, it, 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 it changed the way in which people move and why they move. Um, uh, so uh, when you look at what has happened since the 18th and the 19th century, when you had the great transatlantic migrations, um, you have to think about empire, you have to think about these imperial systems <laughs> You know, look at somebody like Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister of Great Britain, whose grandparents came from Africa. Why were they in Africa? Because the British Empire moved people from South Asia around the globe. So so you have to think about imperial systems and you, you have to think about post-imperial states and post-imperial systems. I mean, how on earth could you study immigration in Britain or France or Belgium Uh, or the Netherlands, you know, without thinking about empire, Uh, Spain, Portugal, we could go on and on. So we've got post-imperial migration states. Um, And then, of course, you also have post-colonial migration states. One of the great chapters in this new book that we did, Understanding Global Migration, is written by political scientist Kamal Sadiq, looking at the evolution, the building of an Indian migration state. You know, which is intricately connected with the old British imperial system. So I could go on and on, but you, we've got to think about how how states govern migration. Uh, you know, what drives their uh, decisions, and um, uh, and we've developed this typology of, of migration states. Everything from the settler, the settler societies, which evolved into liberal migration states, to post-imperial states, post-colonial states. And my colleague Aaron Chung at uh, Johns Hopkins insisted that in Asia, we have to think about a developmental migration state, you know, because migration is is so key uh, to national development strategies um, in a place like the Philippines, for example, which exports people all over the world.
1: Right. Fascinating. I mean, but as I read the, um, you know, the new introduction, I, I was struck by one thing that seemed to me To get relatively short shrift, and that is internal migration. I mean, when I was working on the passport book, you know, one of the things that immediately strikes one uh, as an American (laughs) is that, you know, one of the major aspects of the regulation of movement was the slave system. And the fact that, you know, we had a population, I think it was 40% of the South at the time of the Civil War, something like that, of people who were not allowed to move it. I mean, except for, you know, very limited ways and, you know, perhaps with mm-hmm. passes. And then you learn about places like China have had this Hukau system forever and ever and the pro yep. system in, in Russia and the Soviet Union. And so, you know, we tend to forget that, you know, because we're now focused mainly on people coming in. Who comes in? What are they going to contribute to us? What kind of you know problems might they present? It's and that sort of thing. But until the mid nineteenth century, and of course, Ari Zolberg wrote about this. Till the mid nineteenth century, a lot of the biggest issue was really about people not getting out. And yeah. so, so in any case, it's sort of in that sense a kind of internal migration problem phenomenon that. I think, you know, has fallen, relatively speaking, by the wayside. Uh, Mm -hmm. I have a colleague in sociology you may know named Jim Jasper, Mm -hmm. who has written about, you know, people moving in the United States. And there's some thought that... You know, this, the, the relative decline or, or slackening of, you know, patterns of internal mobility within the United States is a sign of, you know, our relative, uh, you know, declining in innovation and declining uh, interest in, you know, staking out a new claim kind of somewhere else. But I, I wonder what you would say about the place of internal migration in the, you know, larger picture that
0: you're pre- presenting in this book. Well, again, you know, at the risk of sounding like a broken record and always going back to the state. But I mean, the states did, as you pointed out, develop the capacity for regulating and controlling internal migration. But I think if we look back historically uh, to the especially the the 19th century, uh, even the 20th century and today, for that matter, when you think about internal migration, when I think about internal migration, I you know started my career more or less as an economic historian. I think about industrialization. I think about uh, you know rapid economic growth, um, uh, you know that 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 transformed so many societies. And when you have this rapid economic change and social change, you have a rural exodus. <laughs> I mean, people move in very large numbers from the countryside to the cities. You know, you have the phenomenon of urbanization. And if you look at Germany, for example, Germany was a country which went through a very intense period of industrialization with a massive rural exodus. Uh, And even though Germany was growing very fast during much of that time, uh, it couldn't absorb all the surplus population. So where did the Germans go? Catherine the Great recruited them to come to Russia in the millions. Millions of them went to the United States and the Americas and all over the globe. so, so you have to think about the rural exodus and the internal migration that happened in, in Germany. Uh, and this happened of course in Britain as well. Uh, one odd exception is, is France, you know which, which didn't go through uh, a very intense period of industrialization. and the French the French peasant farmers uh, wouldn't leave the land. <laughs> You know they they wouldn't go into the cities. So you know, as the as the historian Gerard Noiriel has pointed out, the French had to invent a working class. Well, where did they go to find workers? They went to first to Belgium and Germany and Switzerland, and then to Italy and to Poland. So they had to import workers in the nineteenth and the twentieth century. You know, to feed the fires of industrialization and economic growth. Now, if you get into the you know you you get into this period in the twentieth century where, as I said, states become hardened, they become increasingly authoritarian, often totalitarian. You know, try moving around in Stalinist Russia, for example. Uh, you know you that you know, every, where people moved where they lived was very, very carefully controlled. And we know the same thing was true you know, in the People's Republic of China, as you mentioned, with a Haku system. But let me just fast forward to stay on the topic of internal migration, and here's where economists and sociologists and political scientists and historians all come together. You know, when we went into the process of building a North American integration (laughs) through the NAFTA process in the 1990s, the government said, oh, once we open Mexico up to trade and investment, migration will stop. You know, people will no longer need to come to the United States and work. Well, guess what, John? It was exactly the opposite. (laughs) You know, the opening up of Mexico resulted in millions of Mexicans leaving the countryside, a massive rural exodus, because all those little farms, state subsidized farms, the ejidos, they disappeared. So people could no longer, they didn't have a livelihood. So they moved to the big cities in Mexico and of course, the cities of Mexico couldn't absorb this large population, so they keep coming north and they move uh, across uh, the border into the United States. So, you know, this is what my colleague Philip Martin, uh, he he called this a migration hump, a migration spike. You know, you have a, a surge in migration, internal migration, followed by international migration. So, So I just want to point this out and how You know, somebody like Doug Massey, you know, who studied this for decades, you know, through the Mexican Migration Project and documented all this stuff. So, uh, so, you know, we social scientists, we uh, sometimes the governments would do well to listen to us and pay more attention to uh, to, uh, you know, what has happened historically. And we should have known that there would be a, a large movement of Mexicans. And by the way, now we're past the migration hump and two over two million Mexicans have gone back since 2007 so why are we building a wall or trying to build a wall <laughs> to stop uh, maybe we don't want people to go home we should keep them here so uh at least as far as mexicans are concerned we know that there's another a another thing going on at the southern border of the united states maybe we'll come back to that later well um uh, I,
1: I, we're gonna to start to run out of time before too long. And and I, you know, I do want to ask you about uh some internal migration that you've been writing about and okay. are concerned about, and I think that we all should need to be concerned about. Yeah. It. And that is the, the phenomenon of internally displaced persons. Yeah. And I, I mean, this is not exactly, you know, the same thing, but I was struck by the fact that I, I think his name is Yodo Jodo, the president of Indonesia has just yes. announced. He's going to move the capital from Jakarta, which is sinking, yes. to, to another island, to Borneo. Yeah. Now, how much of this town that he plans to make the capital is already there, I really don't know. But, uh, you know, it's going to involve a massive movement of people. Now, how many of these people would be internally yeah. I'm not sure. But anyway, it's a phenomenon of, you know, forced migration of a a kind that, however, doesn't involve the refugee phenomenon or the definition anyway. So I wonder if you could talk about, you know, the importance of the IDP phenomenon in the contemporary world.
0: Well, I actually have in my head, since I just came from a meeting in Washington, D.C., where we were talking about this at the Wilson Center, uh, there are now exactly, according to UNHCR, the UN High Commission for Refugees, there are 103 million people of concern to UNHCR. These are people who have been displaced. You know, they are forced migrants, and uh, UNHCR categorizes these people. There are about 20 four or five million refugees. These are people who are refugees. They've been, they're caught in camps or they're being in a process to be resettled somewhere. There are only about five million or so asylum seekers in the world. So we we get really worked up about asylum seekers. But, you know, the, by far the largest number of people of concern are called internally displaced people. These are IDPs. And uh, it's over it's over 50 million, I think now. So what's going on here? I mean, people are being forced to move internally. Uh, Why are they being, why are they being uprooted? Why are they being displaced? Um, Sometimes, John, as I'm sure you know, it has to do with conflict. (laughs) Um, You know, if if there's a civil war raging, look at what's happening in Sudan right now, for example. You know, tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people are gonna be uprooted. You know, look at what happened in Ukraine. You know, we don't we've lost count of how many millions of Ukrainians have had to have been internally displaced. You know, they move from the battlefield in the in the east, you know, closer to the west, you know, to get away from the fighting. And of course, many millions of them have gone on into Europe, mostly women and children. Um, So conflict is one of the things that drives this. But of course, the the thing that you alluded to, which is sort of looming out there, uh, is there are other other forces uh that are that are causing people to move uh and of course people move it's a funny thing about people if they're if they can't survive somewhere if they can't make enough food if they can't eat they're going to move they're going to go somewhere else so why are they losing their livelihoods well there's something called climate change <laughs> so you can't grow coffee very well and many of the places in the hills of Central America, you know, like you once could. So what are these people going to do? <laughs> They've got to go somewhere. If you look at the Sahel, you know, you look at uh, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, you know, vast swaths of Africa where you've got droughts and famine, you know, people, have they, 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 they have to survive. <laughs> so uh, Alexander Betts at Oxford uh, wrote a book about this. He calls it Survival Migration. You know, I mean, people are, you know, often want to live. They want to to get to get their families to safety. So, uh, so the, the the displacement, human displacement, forced displacement, this is increasingly a problem. And we do not have the mechanisms for dealing with this. We don't have the resources. There's no legal category for dealing with people like this. There's no such thing as a climate refugee. <laughs> That is not anywhere in the Refugee Convention or in international law. Uh, So what are we going to do with these? You know, there are millions of people who are going to be on the move. Um, How are we going to manage that? Uh, How are we going to take care of these people? So you're absolutely right to allude to this issue and this phenomenon. It's something that, you know, you and I are a little old, but our children and our grandchildren, you know, they're going to be confronted by this. So we, we better be thinking about it.
1: Right. And indeed, I mean, this gets us to the question that I also wanted to make sure I had a chance to ask you. Um, And that has to do with, you know, in particular, but by no means only, uh, the migration and the, the control of migration across, for example, the Mediterranean from Africa to Europe and across our southern border, you know, metaphorically referred to often as, you know, in terms of the Rio Grande. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, a lot of people die in this process. Uh, And, you know, it's a politically very, well, I would say explosive, you know, issue at this point. Uh, that, you know, certain people want migration to be controlled or, you know, cut off, perhaps. Uh, But in any case, it's a political uh, Mm -hmm. issue that can be, you know, very favorable or unfavorable for a politician. Uh, So anyway, the point is that, you know, a lot of people die in the process of our controlling our borders. And I wonder... You know, I think about this mostly idly without coming up with much in the way of solutions. But I wonder, you know, as somebody who really thinks about these things all the time, you know, what would you say we should be doing to make sure that people aren't dying because they feel they need to, you know, migrate somewhere to survive?
0: Yeah. Well, uh, again, it's a testament to the human spirit that people will go to great lengths, uh, to to get themselves and don't forget their families as well uh, to safety uh you know where they can survive um, and often it is literally a matter of survival if you you if you stay where you are you're likely to perish uh you know we know for example about the violence that goes on in Central America that that's a driving factor uh, but um, it's important to keep in mind and I know this is probably something that you're Those who watch this podcast will be shocked to hear it, but for much of our history in the Western Hemisphere, uh, we have lived in a relatively calm and peaceful neighborhood uh, compared to any other region of the globe. Uh, And uh, yes, we are experiencing a surge in migration at our southern border. Uh, At first, it was the Central Americans who were coming in quite large numbers, but if you go back to this the surge of central americans over the past few years john uh, this this crisis a humanitarian crisis at our border uh, did not rank in the top 15 crises in the world <laughs> in terms of numbers so there are much much there were much bigger crises going on uh, so you would have to ask yourself i mean you know as well as i do that in 2015 16 Germany absorbed over 1 million people uh, many of them Syrians Afghans and others so if you look at what has happened in the middle east and south asia uh or in in in, in sub saharan africa or west africa or east africa uh i mean the, the 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 humanitarian crises there you know they dwarf you know what we have been experiencing in this hemisphere uh so Here's where political scientists, I guess, have to come to the table and you have to try to understand, you know, why has this become such a, uh, a politically charged issue? Um, and um, uh, it, it, you alluded to this. I mean, people are concerned that the governments have control of the borders and people are rightly concerned about issues of rule of law. Uh, And if you look at the global compact for migration and refugees that was put forward a few years ago at the UN, the basic norm or principle should be that movement, migration should be safe, orderly, and legal. (laughs) So this is neither safe, it is certainly not orderly what's going on at the southern border, and it is not really legal uh, uh, in the sense that Uh, You know, you don't have an absolute right to cross a border, uh, 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 you know, and demand asylum. Um, You have a right to request asylum. But should you request asylum in the country where you are transiting? Should you request it before you leave? Uh, uh, And, of course, so many people are so desperate, uh, they're not going to wait, you know, for years to go through that process uh, so if you look at what's happening at our southern border, uh, I said we have we have been living in a relatively calm and peaceful hemisphere. Now we see that people are coming to the southern border of the United States from all over the planet. <laughs> you know, the, the, the numbers are growing. Uh, you've got Ukrainians showing up there. They have a good chance of getting in if they can get to a, turn themselves into a, a border, uh, uh, a border guard. Uh, you have large numbers of Chinese people coming to this border. Of course, you have the Cubans, you have the Haitians. Uh, and years ago, I was writing about this and I said, boy, look at what's going on in Venezuela. How long will it be before the Venezuelans find their way to the southern border of the United States? Well, guess what? They are there. And when if anybody asks you, do we have a migration crisis in the Western Hemisphere, you can say, yes, we do. It's Venezuela." Now we're looking at seven million Venezuelans who have fled their country. Two million of them are living in uh, in, in in Colombia, which has you know gone to great lengths to try to uh, to try to host this population and help these people. But many of them cross the Darien Gap. You know the I guess this is the Isthmus of Panama. It's you know it's one of the most horrible, dangerous places on the planet. Uh, it's a jungle, but it's again a testament to the human spirit. That people have found a way, you know, to cross this impassable uh, uh, area uh, and make their way through very dangerous uh, uh, territory where there are lots of gangs and smugglers involved and get all the way to the southern border and camp out and wait to see when can I get across. Uh, So uh, the Europeans have been dealing with this uh, for decades uh, in, in much larger numbers. Um, and it, it's interesting, John, uh, just to think about why, did the, why are the Ukrainians getting such a warm welcome, as opposed to the Venezuelans, or the Afghans, or the or the Syrians. You can pick your favorite nationality. Well, uh, Ukraine is a huge country, bordering on the European Union. Russia is now has invaded Ukraine. Uh, this has gotten everybody's attention in Europe. So it's a, it's an enormous uh, security threat. The Europeans have come together, and they understand that they have no choice but to to welcome the Ukrainians. And yes, it is true; they see the Ukrainians as as uh, relatives, as cousins. In many cases, you know, look at the Poles who take so many Ukrainians. So so being in the neighborhood, having a cultural tie. You know, having this enormous geopolitical st- stakes of this conflict with Russia are just too great. You know, you have to take care of these you, these Ukrainians. And by the way, don't forget, something like seventy or eighty percent of them are women and children. <laughs> so you're going to turn the women and children back into the uh, uh, into the uh, into the battlefront? I don't think so. Uh, so uh, so we have to be a little bit careful about jumping to conclusions here. Um, but again, you know, what what responsibility does the United States have for people who are moving, who are displaced in this hemisphere? You know, that would probably take us the rest of the afternoon to, just to answer that question. Uh, we have played our own role in in this hemisphere in terms of, uh, you know, U.S. Uh, imperial policy in places like Mexico, Central America, Venezuela, Cuba. Uh, so you know we we do have a lot of responsibility for for what's happened in this hemisphere
1: fascinating I mean <laughs> it's just a tremendous overview of the world's migration situation oh, yeah. you know I mean we haven't gotten into what's going on and in- South Africa, for example, or whatever, there are many other kinds of situations that we could talk about. I would,
0: I would encourage the, the listeners to get a copy of this new book, Understanding Global Migration. The first chapter in the book is a fabulous chapter by a colleague, Odi Klotz, who teaches at Syracuse, and it's all about South Africa, what's going on in the Southern African uh, migration system. So get a copy of Understanding Global Migration. You can learn a lot from reading that book
1: okay uh good plug but we're going <laughs> we're going to have to end on that on that note uh, that's it for today i want to thank Jim Hollyfield for sharing his enormous insights about migration, uh, migration regulation, migration control. Uh, Look for us on the New Books Network, and remember to subscribe and rate International Horizons on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. I want to thank Osvaldo Mena Aguilar for his technical assistance, as well as to acknowledge Duncan McKay for sharing his song, International Horizons, as the theme music for the show. This is John Torpy saying thanks for joining us and we look forward to having you with us for the next episode of International Horizons.